So as we come to uh, the first chapter in uh, the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we actually uh, come into a time in, in a period of Israel's history where uh, things are not going well. I, in fact, the situation is dire. Uh, just a, a couple books before, uh, the author of Judges uh, ends that book uh, with the ominous words of saying, uh, in those days uh, there was no king over Israel, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, it, it, it's really this uh, kind of bleak ending of, of things are going to get worse in the nation of Israel. And if, as you're reading through the book of Judges and you get to the end there, you, you think, well, well, how much worse can it get? Because at this point, I, I've seen a lot, lot of moral decay going on in the country already. Uh, in Judges uh, 17 and 18, uh, we, we see that there is uh, such a deterioration uh, in, in the morality of Israel that uh, private sanctuaries are, are, are being robbed and, and priests are being kidnapped and, and taken away. And it, it doesn't seem like maybe that big of a deal. And, and in chapters 19 through 21, we, we see a civil war break out uh, with uh, Benjamin and the other tribes because a, a young woman traveler is uh, raped and then murdered. And, and, and these are things that God's people were definitely supposed to stand against. That They were actually supposed to be a light unto other nations about uh, who God was and how people were meant to live and how we were created and all these things. And, and yet, for the very reason that the author of the book of Judges ends that book in the way he does, that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is essentially going after what they want with little regard for what God wants and, and with no regard for what that means for other people because we know the thing about people, right? The thing about people is, is that when left to our own devices, we are always going to chase the thing that we want the most. And usually what that means is other people are going to stand in the way and if need be, we will take them out of the way so that we can have what makes us happy, what makes us feel complete. Now, we, we see this corruption in the country and, and the, de the deterioration actually in this chapter in 1 Samuel. Uh, because right there from the get-go, we're introduced to uh, this man Elkanah and his family, and, and the author of 1 Samuel uh, tells us that Elkanah actually has two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And he mentions it quickly, and he doesn't really seem to take note of it. He doesn't make a big deal about the fact uh, that this guy has two wives. And obviously, that is not God's design for his people. That's not how we were created. This points us to the fact that polygamy had become a widely accepted, publicly acceptable practice in Israel. So much so that Elkanah feels no shame in coming to the temple with both of his wives, offering up sacrifices, giving them both meat. And so here in 1 Samuel, we see that the, de the deterioration that is taking place in the country as a whole has worked its way into Elkanah's family itself. He has two wives that end up actually becoming rivals, and so you have what is essentially a split family, a split household. We find out that uh, Peninnah has uh, sons, and Hannah doesn't. Uh, Hannah is suffering from infertility. And, and, and so, as Ed just read for us, we see that Hannah herself is in a position of great weakness. That her life is seemingly in shambles. She is wrecked with despair. 
And what's more is her world around her, her country, seems to be crumbling at the same time. This is the last Sunday in 2020, and so I don't want to do one of those, like, how hard 2020 has been, you know, kind of sermons and, and, and talk about that uh, so much. And um, I also don't want to say, hey, it's going to be great because at the end of this week, 2020 is done and it's a new year, that sort of thing. But I think if there's anything that all of us can identify with this week at the end of this year is that we know what it feels like to have our weaknesses exposed. To be in positions of vulnerability. Uh, To feel like not only is our own life crumbling, but the world around us is falling apart and deteriorating at such a high rate that what can we trust in? What can we rely on? There's nothing stable in our life, and things are day-to-day, and that is unsettling. We know what it's like to be in a position of weakness. Um, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, uh, the Apostle Paul was talking about this very thing, and, and there he says this thing that, it, it sounds great, actually. He, he, let's just read it. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think for any person that finds himself in a position like Hannah did, that's gone through a year like what all of us have had to go through, like 2020, uh, Paul's words there sound so good. What, what an amazing thought that in, in the times of our greatest need, they're actually the times in which we can find the most strength in dependability. That things can actually be the most stable when they feel unstable. And and yet, uh, for the hope that we find in those words, for everything that we want that to be, I, I myself actually find in my life oftentimes that I go to this passage, I read it, I look at it, and I say, man, I want that to be the case, but how in the world does it actually work? It's a nice thought, but I've got to tell you, in the times that have been hardest in my life, it doesn't seem to be real. That it doesn't feel like when I'm weak, I'm actually strong. Uh, it, It feels like when I'm weak, I'm weak. It feels like when I'm vulnerable, not only can I see it, but everybody else can see it. And and what's more is it feels like when I'm down, that's when I get kicked the most. One of the things that that I think even Hannah would say if she was able to maybe talk to Paul is, is, okay, man, that sounds great, but how is that really the case? What is that really like? Like, what do you mean? In my weakness, I I can be strong. What Paul is pointing to, and the thing that is so hard for us to grasp in that exact moment, that oftentimes we can look back and see, but in that time, it's impossible for us to step away and and, and see the bigger picture, is that what he's saying and pointing to is that there is more happening in your weakness than you know. There are things going on that are impossible for you to see in that moment. 
You see, what Hannah's story, what I want to focus on this morning, what, what I want us to see uh, as we walk through this first chapter and we look at Hannah dealing with something that is so incredibly painful and embarrassing, is that there are actually two things taking place. There is always in our weakness what we feel. And that is real. And so I want to talk about that. What is it that we feel in in these moments of weakness and vulnerability and suffering in our lives so that we can know it, we can recognize it, and we can see that maybe it's something that we shouldn't push away as quickly as we want to all the time. But then there is also what we need to know. What we need to know is happening in the midst of our weakness. And that oftentimes is the harder thing for us to recognize, but it is the greater truth in the midst of our weakness. So let's just start there at the start in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2, where as we're introduced to Elkanah and his family, we're told that he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Right there at the very beginning, we're introduced to Hannah, and we are told what is wrong with her. That actually, this has become the defining feature of who Hannah is. And so in that, we can identify with Hannah because we know that in the moments of our greatest weakness, one of the things that we feel right off the bat is you feel misunderstood. Sure, this could be a just way for the author to set up the narrative and say, here's what's going on, guys. Peninnah has kids. Hannah doesn't. But I think there's more than that to that than this. I, I think that this is how Hannah was known. When people would see Elkanah, talk about him and his family, they'd go, oh yeah, there's Elkanah and he has his wife. Peninnah, she has kids, uh, has a few kids. Uh, and then Hannah, she doesn't have any kids. Hannah is known by what she does not have. We know this is true because we do this ourselves in our own world. I I heard a talk not too long ago by somebody who was talking about the homeless crisis uh, in our area, in the greater Portland area, and they they work a lot uh, with those who have been displaced uh, from um, homes. And uh, she said one of the things that we need to do first, if you want to to tackle the problem of homelessness um, in our world, is we need to change the way that we refer to people. Uh, she said that we don't call them homeless because they are not defined by what they don't have. That's not who they are. That's not the most important thing about who they are. It doesn't even begin to describe who they are. And yet somehow we think, I mean, we just, we do it so casually, we don't even think about it. We think that the greatest thing about knowing who that person is and their situation and their life and what they need is that they don't have a home like many of the rest of us do. Hannah was known in the same way. She was childless. That that somehow being without children was the thing that described her the most. And what's more is in her culture, this was an issue of shame because it wasn't just that, oh, isn't it so bad that Hannah doesn't have kids? It was always seen as the woman's fault if they were unable to bear children. 
And it was always seen as their fault because it was something that they had done. Obviously, they deserved it. They, 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 they had screwed up somewhere. And so because of that, they were not blessed with children. So Hannah has to live under this cloud of shame that, that she just knows and, and feels like that every time people look at her, this is what they see. They see what she does not have, and they think that that's all they need to know about her. We all know what it feels like to be misunderstood to the point that when people look at us, all they see is that mistake, that hole in our life, that we don't have children, that we haven't found a spouse, that we lost our job. And that seems to be the only thing people think they need to know about us. And so we feel misunderstood, just like Hannah did. But it doesn't stop there. Actually, it quickly moves on, both for Hannah and ourselves, because the next thing that we know all too well about in the moments of our greatest weakness in our life is that we also feel not just misunderstood, but we feel attacked. Look there at verses 4 through 6. It says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Peninnah taunts Hannah year after year, day after day. She rubs her face in it. Why? Well, she's jealous. But two, when the enemy when Satan finds our greatest weaknesses, our, our, our places of great vulnerability in our life, he has a way of rubbing salt in that wound so that it will never heal, it will never close. We will never be able to move on from it. You see, for, for Hannah, it wasn't just the fact that it was an issue of shame. That, that her actually entire life was in jeopardy. She was in extreme vulnerability. That her future was in question. You, you see, she would have no one to pass along her life to. Her life experiences and the, the things in her life. What's more is her present was in jeopardy. Because the way that this world worked was that when Elkanah passed away, all of his possessions, everything he had, would be passed on to his male children. And so not having any kids, Hannah would be left with nothing. And what's more is we know from the relationship that she seemingly has with Peninnah is that Peninnah and her kids are not going to help Hannah out at all. And so the moment that Elkanah passes away, Hannah will be out on the street with nothing left to fend for herself in a culture and a nation that is not caring for widows and orphans like it was instructed to by God. Why? Because there is no king and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So she feels attacked. She feels attacked on all sides. She is a heart attack, literally a heart attack away from losing everything. In our great weakness, we feel misunderstood. We feel attacked. And as we move on, 
there in 1 Samuel, verse 11, we see Hannah coming to this point of desperation, and it says that praying to God, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. Hannah feels alone. God doesn't remember her. And in our weaknesses, because the suffering is so great, we feel alone too. We don't just feel like maybe God has forgotten us. God has abandoned us, but actually... It's in our moments of greatest need that we find out who our friends are. And usually what we find out is the people that we thought we could depend on, we can't actually depend on. And the same is true for Hannah's life. As she goes to the temple and she's praying and she's pouring her heart out to God, we see Eli there and he's a priest and he's one person that should get what she's going through and see the spiritual struggle and see the intent of her heart. And yet Eli himself can't see what's going on. And so he actually condemns her. He actually calls her drunk and he tells her to you know, go back home and sober up. That actually a person that she should have found soulless and like she, she finds more attacks from. What's more is her husband, Elkanah, as much as he loves her, we, we just saw how he, he gives a, a, a double portion of, of, of meat to her because of his love for her. He doesn't even really seem to get it. Look there in verse 8, his question to her, I mean, it's one of those where like as a husband, you, kind of, you look at it and you're like, man, just don't speak. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I don't consider myself having it all figured out as far as being a husband goes, but I know you don't say that. Right? Like guys, you're, like, you're just like, oh man, ugh. Like, he, his friends are, like, sitting over in the corner, like, ah, oh, dude, no, like, just stop. Am I not more to you than ten sons? A better question to her, or actually a statement to her would have been, you, Hannah, are worth more to me than ten sons. He doesn't get the full picture of what she's going through. Hannah is utterly alone. There is no one that seems to know the depth of her despair. How complex it is. How many layers there are to it. That it's not just like, oh, hey, I've got a husband. Why do I need kids? It's so much bigger than that. Her worth, her value, how she sees herself, what she can hope in, what she can build her life upon. The fact that in the very next moment, it might all come tumbling down around her. No one can live with that. And yet the people that she could have, should have been able to rely on seem to have abandoned her, at the very least in an emotional way. We feel alone in the midst of our weakness. And what's more is finally we always feel trapped we're told that this happened to Hannah year after year. 
And that's the thing about our suffering is it is never over quick enough, right? There never seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. It feels like it will drag on forever. And, and so the heaviness of being misunderstood and feeling attacked and the utter loneliness that creeps into our life, that surrounds us, that crushes us, there's no getting out of it. And that's when truly despair sets in. As I was uh, reading about and and thinking about Hannah's story uh, this week, the the movie, uh, big surprise, a movie came to my mind. The movie The Darkest Hour came to mind. And uh, uh, this is, uh, came out a few years ago, and it's about Winston Churchill, the first few weeks of uh, him being prime minister in 1940. Uh, um, a few weeks where uh, Hitler had invaded um, uh, Belgium and Holland and uh, France as well, and was seemingly taking over uh, all of Europe. So probably not the time you want to be thrust into a position like prime minister of Britain. And uh, the thing, though, with with that even was, is that seemingly nobody wanted him to be the prime minister of Britain. Uh, you see, his party didn't want him. Uh, Neville, Neville Chamberlain had been the uh, prime minister uh, of Britain, and it's, and it's pretty widely accepted that he wasn't that good of a prime minister and uh, had a lot to do with Hitler being able to rise to power uh, and all that stuff. That's a whole lot of history that you guys don't care about. But uh, Neville Chamberlain was uh, voted out of office by the opposition party, and so um, Chamberlain's party had to put somebody forward that the opposition party would accept. And the only person in their party uh, that they would accept was Winston Churchill. The only problem was is that nobody in Churchill's party liked him. Uh, because Churchill's party was one that was widely trying to negotiate a peace agreement with Hitler. And Churchill had been pretty much from the get-go, the only person screaming at the top of his lungs about who Hitler was and what he was about and that you couldn't negotiate with him and people had to be aware of what was going on and all that kind of stuff. And so from the very beginning, thrust into this position that is really just a no-win situation, not only was Churchill having to deal with what was going on in Europe with, with Germany and France and everything else, but his own party from day one was actively trying to get rid of him, kick him out of office. He was being attacked from within. What's more is the king himself did not trust Winston Churchill. You see, Churchill had uh, been in a few different positions before. Uh, most uh, notably, uh, he had been in a position where uh, during the First World War, uh, he had launched a campaign uh, that became infa- infamous known as the Gallipoli Campaign, where he tried to open a second front in Turkey, and uh, so many British forces uh, were wiped out. It was seen as an utter and complete failure, and it was laid in his lap. And so the king was worried. He just said, you know, basically, uh, this guy's entire track record is, is, is one of um, complete disaster. And so he didn't have support from the beginning from the one place he needed it most. And even, too, the, there's a moment where uh, in the first few days uh, of being prime minister, uh, Churchill flies to France, which is in that moment, being invaded, actively invaded, uh, by uh, German panzer tanks. And uh, he's sitting there at a table with the French and trying to convince them that they need to fight back 
and the French look at him and say, you're delusional, we're just going to surrender. Europe is collapsing. 300,000, the entire troops, the, the entire British army is trapped on a beach in France. Uh, because they, they, had, they had been sent over to help the French defend their lines. Um, and then when the French folded, uh, their troops trying to get away get trapped on this beach. There's no way to get them off. It's a no-win situation. They're about to lose 300,000 men. And every person around Churchill is either trying to get him out of office or telling him, it's no use. We can't do anything. They're throwing their hands up. Every step of the way as you walk through this movie, you just feel like, oh my goodness, this guy, every person that he should be able to rely on has left him. What's more is they, they, they don't understand, they misunderstand him, what he's about, and, and, and all of these things. So often the person, the sound the alarm, is the one that is the most misunderstood. And then this very cl- climactic part of, of the movie, he has this phone call with uh, uh, Roosevelt. And, and he's in this little closet down in, in uh, the bunker uh, that they held all of their uh, cabinet meetings in. And, uh, and he's talking to Roosevelt, and he, he asks him, he says, can, can you send us some ships? We, 40, 50 destroyers. They don't even have to be new destroyers. We just need ships. Um, FDR has to explain to him that uh, the year before, uh, the United States had signed a neutrality act in which they weren't allowed to ship anyone. Um, guns, ammunition, ships, planes. Anything like that. And so kind of with, uh, on his last leg, Churchill, he asked FDR, well, can we send an aircraft carrier to pick up the bombers that we bought from you? And FDR says, well, again, because of this neutrality act, these new laws, I'm not allowed to do that. He says, but, you know what, I I think we could come up with a plan. Um, We could take uh, the bombers to uh, within a mile of the Canadian border, and if you were willing to come across with a team of horses, you could pull the airplanes across. Here's a guy who is seemingly, who is single-handedly trying to fight back the German occupation and takeover of all of Europe. And he's being told that to get bombers in order to do that, he needs to send a team of horses across the Canadian border to pull those planes into Canada because they're not allowed to use motorized trucks or boats or anything like that. In that moment, it's this piece of movie gold because they pull back and it's Churchill sitting there with the phone in his hand, at a loss for what to do. And it's him in that little space with darkness all around him. Closing in on him, crushing him. There's so much of it. How, how in the world could he ever fight it back, hold it off, keep it at arm's length? And this is such an amazing picture of what it feels like when we experience great weakness and suffering in our life. 
that we are trying frantically to do everything we can to hold it back, to keep it from overcoming us. And the harder we try, it seems like everything slips through our fingers. And how in the world will we not be crushed by this? We don't want to feel like this. We don't f- want to feel like this, and so we do fight it. We, we, we try to c- take control of it, much like Churchill was. We even will, if we have to, deny it. Say, you know, maybe we'll, I'm not, what I'm going through isn't that bad. Because we would rather just deny it, put our head in the sand, than feel this way. Than feel as though we are misunderstood. Then deal with the fact that we are being attacked by people. Then, then have to come to grips with the loneliness that we find ourselves in. But if all else fails, then we'll seek sympathy for it, right? We'll let it actually consume us. And in that way, well, at least at that point, maybe people will take pity on me. The problem with that is, is it immobilizes us. There is no way that we can live in this place uh, where our weaknesses are what come to define us. That that's how we want people to see us. And be the people God has called us to be. Because it's not necessarily that the enemy wants to kill you. He just wants to keep you down. As we walk through Scripture, we see so much suffering taking place. One of the things about the Bible that, that oftentimes we miss, and, and, and especially people that uh, don't read it, don't get is that it is not a picture of a life put together. It is a picture of things going awry, of, of great weaknesses being exposed, and of utter dejection being experienced. We see people like Job who lose everything. We, we, we walk with Elijah sitting under a tree wishing for death because the weight of everything he's going through is so great. We even see this with Jesus so many different times in his ministry, particularly there at the end as he is facing the cross and crucifixion. He actually shares this with the disciples there in Matthew 26 where he says to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me because I don't want to be alone, we can hear him say. What you feel in the midst of your greatest weakness and suffering and vulnerability is real. It is true. And what's more is we see Scripture in Hannah's story giving a voice to those things, to what you feel. But the thing is that, while our feelings are real, they are legitimate, they are never the full picture of what is going on. The greatest mistake that you and I can make is that when we find ourselves in a place like Hannah did, when we find ourselves utterly brought to sorrow to the point of death like Jesus, is to think that this is the way it is. This is all it is. That's all that I need to know. And the amazing thing about Hannah's story is that there is a lot more going on than just what she is feeling in the moment. There is more going on in your story than what you are feeling in the moment. There are a few things, three things, in fact, that you need to know. 
the first thing that you need to know when you find yourself in the midst of great suffering is you need to know that God has been there the entire time. There are a couple times in this passage where it says explicitly, the Lord closed her womb. I know what you're thinking, and so I'll just address it. I don't know why God did this. Maybe, maybe it's possible that this is an idiom. This is the author's just way of saying, this is, this is how they talk. This is what they said. You know, Hannah did something, and so God closed her womb because of that. Maybe it's that, but I don't think that's the case because I, I, this, is, this is God's word. This is not the way that everybody else always saw it and talked about it and, and, and dealt with it. And, and so maybe... Maybe the reason that this is the case, this is what's going on in his life, is maybe God knew. Maybe God knew something that we don't. Maybe God knew something that Hannah didn't. Maybe God knew that if Hannah just had children easily, she would find a sufficiency apart from him and never need him, never address him, live her life totally independent of him. Maybe God knew that if he gave Hannah what she wanted, it actually wouldn't go well. For Hannah. It would actually be something that could lead to her destruction in more ways than one. I mean, sure, if you ask me, wouldn't it have been better if she could, could have just had the child and not had walked through all of the suffering and pain and weakness and vulnerability? My answer would be, yeah. If it was up to me, I'd just give her a baby. But I'm not God, and neither are you, and we don't see the whole picture. And the point is not, why did God do this? The point that we need to know and understand, and that Hannah needed to know, is that God is not absent in your suffering. He is not busy elsewhere as you walk through times and moments of your greatest vulnerability. He has not forgotten you. And what's more is God goes beyond even being there. God feels these things with us. In talking about the coming of the Messiah and what God is going to do in Jesus, in Isaiah, he, he says there in chapter 53, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The point of this is, well, what Isaiah is pointing to, and what we need to do is, it's not just that God is there in the midst of our suffering. God feels it with us. He does not put it on us, allow it to happen to us, and stand back and say, oh man, that looks rough. He is feeling it with us. He has taken everything that you and I go through onto himself, and he has put it on the cross, and he has said, not only will I feel it as they feel it, but I will do something through it. He is with you in your suffering. And the fact that he allows it to happen does not mean he has abandoned you, does not mean he has left you to sit in it, to waller in it, to be destroyed by it. And what's more is we have the promise that he is using it. He is working in the midst of it, and he is working it all for our good. 
The enemy will always, he, he speaks lies, his language is lies, and what he wants you to feel, what he wants you to think, what he wants you to, in the depth of your heart, know is that you are cut off from hope, you are cut off from goodness, so that there is nothing good or redeemable about what it is you are walking through. There is nothing good that can come out of having your weaknesses exposed, and so push them down, deny them, hide them, don't address them. And the fact that you're walking through them, the fact that you're suffering today, he wants you to believe means that God has given up on you. And none of that is true. And it was, because it wasn't true in Hannah's case, and it's not true in yours either. Even though you may be going through something today that is unbearable, God has not left you. He's there. And he feels it, and what's more is he is working in it, and that is the other thing. The next thing that we need to know, know that he's still working. Look there in verse 19 with me. It says, they rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. This is after Hannah has talked to Eli, and she has prayed, and he has actually seen what's going on finally, and he's blessed her. And it says, then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. This word for remembered in the Hebrew means more than just a mental recall. It's actually really tr- literally translated. It means God acted on Hannah's behalf. He performed something. He worked in Hannah's life. It is gracious intervention. As we talked about before, in the midst of our weakness, it seems like there are people that we should be able to depend on. Hannah had people like that. She had Elkanah. She had Eli. And yet they were all letting her down. And it seems like in the midst of our suffering and weakness that God isn't there or working, right? It felt this way in the world around Hannah. Everything that she could look at, she would say, it's going poorly. So how can God be there? How can God be real if this is the way it is? And yet what we see in Hannah's life is that God is working. And what we see in the nation of Israel is that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of a deterioration of something that God has said, I'm going to use this to bring about the Messiah. I'm going to use this country, these people, to bring this about. And yet it's all falling apart. And so it's like, how could this possibly happen? Even in the midst of that, God is still working. We see that in the book of Ruth, the the book right before 1 Samuel. We're there in Ruth's life God is using Ruth and working in Ruth's life to prepare the way, the line through which David will come and eventually Jesus too. And what we see in Hannah's reaction to all this, this feeling that everything is falling apart, God's not there, he's not working, is that she is brought to desperation because everything is working against her. Everywhere she's turned, it hasn't worked. It's abandoned her. It's let her down. And so she has to. She's forced to turn to her final option. And this is key for us because I think the thing that we often fight off the hardest in our life is desperation. Nobody wants to be that person. Nobody wants to be so desperate that we have no other options. Nobody wants to be in a place where we only have one option. 
And so we'll fight. We'll, we'll, we'll work to keep our options open. We'll, we'll, we'll maneuver uh, to, to figure out a way that, that we don't get to that place. And yet, what we see with Hannah's story is that when we will finally humble ourselves to admit how desperate we are and that God is the only thing that could possibly work in our life, that's the moment that our weakness is turned into strength. Louis, Louis Giglio said, when you have nothing left but God, you have more than enough. For whatever reason, it's hard to feel that way. To feel like God is more than enough. Because it doesn't feel like he's working, does it? But the truth is, is not only is he there, but he remembers you. He is graciously intervening in your life. And what's more is it's not just that he's intervening in your life. He's using your life to intervene in the lives of other people. Because the thing you need to know is not just that he's there or that he's working. It's that he is doing something greater than you can imagine. See, God uses Hannah to bring about this child, Samuel. Samuel will end up being a a prophet and a priest and ultimately the last judge of Israel. And through Samuel, God is going to remind Israel who its real king is, even though they're asking for another. He's going to bring Israel back into a relationship with God that it hasn't had for quite a long time. That's not something Hannah asked for. That that, that was beyond her wildest dreams, and yet the way our God works, the way that his grace manifests itself in our life is that he doesn't just give Hannah what she needs. He gives Israel exactly what it needs. The term for weakness uh, in Hebrew is also the same word uh, used for begging. And uh, begging to us is it's ugly. It is uh, not becoming. It is something none of us want to do. And yet Hannah was brought to the point of begging. And we see in doing that, it, opening, it opened, had the ability to open her up to God and his will and the way he wanted to work in such a way that God was able to not only work in her life, he was able, he's going to be able to work in the nation of Israel. When we are at our weakest, that is when God can do something truly great. It's at our weakest moments and positions in life that we are able to really begin to see God's power in our life. You may feel like this is a place of being weak and vulnerable, of feeling misunderstood, attacked, and alone, that will never end. It's a place that you don't want to be in, and that what you feel it can be the only thing that's going on. But just know this, that God is there, that God is working, and God is doing something in your life greater than you could even imagine asking him for. And that rather be, than being in a place 
where you're going to have all of these things exposed, you're actually in a place where you're going to finally be able to see God's power work in a way that you would never ask to see. You're, you're going to actually see why he is God. And why being humbled to the point of having to rely on him alone is the best thing that could possibly happen in your life. It's pretty cliche for like during this week and the next for pastors to kind of talk about, you know, ending a year and beginning in a new year, but at the expense of maybe being cheesy, let me just say that for each one of us, if rather than looking to this next year and saying, I'm going to forget everything that's happened in the past year and I'm going to enter into 2021 in a position of strength and, and stability and confidence. If instead we would take the approach of Jesus and Elijah and Job and Hannah and admit our weaknesses for what they are, to, to feel all of the things that we feel in that place. If we would enter into this next year in a position of weakness, it will set us up and put us in a position where 2021 can actually be a year in which God can do great things. Because it's when we are weak, greater things than we can see are going on. And rather than us trying to control and dictate and make things the way we feel like they need to be, we can finally let go and allow God's will to be done and find in his will, that is where we find our strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, for each one of us this morning, our prayer is simple. Would we let go of whatever it is we are holding on to that we feel like keeps us standing? And Lord, would we fall to our knees in a moment of truth Admit our full and total and complete need for you. So that, Lord, your will would be done in our life. And Lord, in our weakness, would you bless us that rather than pointing to ourselves and what we can do and who we are and what we've accomplished, that we would point to the hope and the power of Jesus Christ. Would we be a people that proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus because it is there that we find our strength? If that is not the hope that we have today, Lord, would you bring us to a place where, like Hannah, we cry out and we beg and we plead and we say, God, would you just remember me? And would your Holy Spirit comfort us and remind us and show us that you have been there the entire time. Thank you for the fact that we can know that you are working, even when we don't feel it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.